How many eyewitnesses does it take to corroborate a story? When an event transpires that is singularly conspicuous but is somehow still shrouded in mystery, how can we trust our own understanding of what is possible? Our watery and uncertain relationship with reality seems to loom like, well, like a hovering blimp. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who would like to go up, up, and away in a beautiful balloon, but short of that would accept a pleasurable, dirigible ride, providing nothing disastrous and life-threatening were to happen. Right. This week, we'll stow away on a naval airship in order to try to figure out what happened to two officers aboard the ill-fated Ghost Blimp. In the summer of 1942, the United States was in its ninth month at war with Japan. The Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor, a military base in Hawaii, in December of 1941, which was the catalyst that brought the United States into World War II. Up until that point, we had watched from the sidelines while the world's nations seemed to go crazy on each other. Again. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese kept up their offensive on the west coast of the United States, sinking at least six Allied ships and bombing an oil drilling facility in California, marking the first attack on U.S. mainland soil since the British bombed New Orleans in 1812. For some reason, the Navy was short on ships. I mean, sure, they lost around six of them to Japanese bombs, but one would hope that the Navy, which is literally the branch of the military that is filled with sailors, would have enough ships that six wouldn't make or break them. To make up for their lack of seagoing vessels, the Navy decided to invest in blimps for patrol of the waters off the West Coast. Apparently, helicopters weren't really a thing yet, and radar systems weren't capable of tracking submarines. Now, I'm no military mastermind, but wouldn't you think the first thing radar designers would have designed was radar that could detect submarines? Then again, what do I know? Anyway... The Navy, having decided to turn back the hands of time and revert to a hundred-year-old technology, then faced the very real problem of where to get a blimp. So they turned to the first name in blimps, Goodyear. That's right, the U.S. Navy bought a second-hand Goodyear blimp. I can't with this. Okay, so now that they had a used blimp, they were ready to send a crew up to patrol from Treasure Island, a naval outpost in the San Francisco Bay. Initially, there was a crew of three, but the blimp had collected condensation overnight, adding more weight than anyone anticipated, so they cut the crew down by one. The men who would fly the mission were Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams. Lieutenant Cody was the senior aviator of his squadron, but had only been flying blimps for about nine months. He was only 27, but according to HistoryNet.com, his commanding officer said he was one of the most capable pilots and one of the most able officers under his command. In fact, even though he'd only been blimping for a short time, earlier that year in April of 1942, Lieutenant Cody had flown a blimp to deliver cargo to a naval ship before it departed for a raid over Tokyo. It was an impressive enough accomplishment that it earned him a promotion. HistoryNet.com also notes that Lieutenant Cody wore a mustache, quote, most likely in an effort to appear older. I googled him, and while the mustache did add an air of authority to the handsome and baby-faced Lieutenant Cody, it was also, unfortunately, 
a pretty Hitlery mustache. Lieutenant Cody's partner for the mission, Charles Ellis Adams, despite being seven years older and having 20 years of experience flying blimps and having been decorated by the German government for having been part of the rescue mission for the Hindenburg disaster, only had the rank of ensign, which is the lowest rank in the U.S. Navy. I don't know why. The blimp the men were flying that day was called L-8, or Love-8. It had an excellent reputation and had been inspected four days prior to the mission and was deemed to be in fine working condition. The 150-foot-long blimp held 123,000 cubic feet of helium, and with twin 145-horsepower engines, it had a cruising speed of 43 knots, just under 50 miles per hour. And of course, unlike an airplane, the blimp had the ability to hover in a stationary position, giving it an advantage in surveillance. Because, you know, no one would ever notice a big fat blimp hovering over and surveilling them. L-8 was equipped with 17 depth bombs designed specifically to target submarines, a machine gun, and 300 rounds of ammunition. With favorable weather and good visibility, the blimp took off at 6.03 a.m. on August 16th for its planned four-hour mission with a 50-mile radius, surveilling the waters off San Francisco. But less than two hours later, something was amiss, and soon a bizarre mystery would begin to unfold over the skies of San Francisco that to this day has never been solved. At 7.38 a.m., Lieutenant Cody radioed in to give their position. They had just crossed over the Golden Gate Bridge. Four minutes later, at 7.42 a.m., he radioed in saying, quote, "...am investigating suspicious oil slick. Stand by." An oil slick was a possible indication that a submarine was below. On the water in the area were two ships with eyes on L-8. One was a naval cargo ship called SS Albert Gallatin, and the other was a fishing vessel called the Daisy Gray. No relation. Shortly after radioing in about the oil slick, the ships in the water saw two smoke flares deployed by L-8, presumably to probe into the water to confirm if there was a sub there or not. The Gallatin readied its guns for possible attack, and the Daisy Gray pulled in its nets. Oddly, it seems, she did not sail off, which one would think a fishing vessel might do in the face of imminent bombing. And this is when things got weird. L-8 did not employ any bombs, but the men on L-8 should have radioed in again at 8 a.m. to give a status report. They didn't. Instead, they just circled the area for about an hour. The first mate on the Daisy Gray said he could see two men in the gondola of the blimp, one with dark hair, which would have matched Ensign Adams' description. By 8.20 a.m., when the men still hadn't radioed in and the base had made a few unsuccessful attempts at reaching them, squadron headquarters was notified of the radio silence. Apparently, it wasn't tremendously unusual to lose contact with blimps for a period of time, which just seems, I don't know, pretty loosey-goosey to me. Like, oh, it's just two naval officers possibly hovering over the enemy we're at active war with. (laughs) NBD. The crew aboard both ships on the water reported L-8 hovering around two to 300 feet above the water, but said that at one point it descended to about 30 feet, as if investigating something more closely. At 8.50 a.m., when they still had not radioed in, two Vought OS-2U Kingfisher float planes were sent out to look for L-8, and other aircraft in the area were alerted to be on the lookout. 
In interviews later, the crew from the Gallatin and the Daisy Gray reported that at 9 a.m., L-8 dropped its ballast, a counterweight that helped keep the blimp from ascending too high, and apparently made its way back towards San Francisco. But it would be almost another two hours before the next sighting occurred. At 10.49 a.m., a Pan Am Clipper pilot reported seeing the blimp over the Golden Gate Bridge. The pilot said nothing seemed to be wrong with the blimp and that its flight looked controlled. What's remarkable to me about this is that considering it took the men about an hour and a half to get from the Golden Gate to their position where they spotted the oil slick, how could it have been that no one spotted the blimp between 9 a.m. and 10.49 a.m.? Where could they have possibly been in that hour and 50 minutes? At 11 a.m., one of the rescue planes reported seeing L-8 ascend to a height of about 2,000 feet, which was definitely unusually high. But they said the flight still looked controlled, which is to say it didn't look like it was floating up of its own accord. Someone was apparently still at the controls in the gondola. According to HistoryNet.com, 2,000 feet is apparently very close to the pressure height where the blimp's valves would have automatically opened to vent out helium to prevent its gas cells from bursting. I have to assume these valves are on the outside of the blimp, not in the cabin where the men are, right? Like, the safety feature doesn't off-gas helium into the cabin where the crew is, right? That would be crazy, right? Why the men ignored the pressure height ceiling, no one knows, but they would have known they shouldn't have been up so high. Shortly after that sighting, an army pilot spotted the blimp, noting nothing unusual, and assumed it was heading back to Treasure Island. But a few minutes after that sighting, Richard Quam, an off-duty seaman, spotted L-8 as he was driving up the coast. He noticed the blimp was sagging in the middle something apparently the army pilot hadn't noticed moments before. Quam supposedly took a picture of the blimp, but where that picture is today, no one knows. His film was confiscated by the Navy and, I guess, never returned. Fifteen minutes later, a sunbather saw the blimp sagging noticeably, floating just about 50 feet above the water just offshore near Fort Funston, according to a 2018 piece in the San Francisco Chronicle. If you're picking up on how increasingly hazardous this flight is becoming, get ready for more. Because then, sometime between 11.15 and 11.30 a.m., the blimp ran aground along a hill on Ocean Beach, knocking one of the 325-pound depth charges, bombs designed to detonate underwater, off. Now, 325 pounds lighter, the blimp floated up again, cleared the hill, and was next spotted over a golf club where one golfer claimed to have seen, quote, a parachute descending from L-8 while the blimp was still offshore. At any rate, now there were thousands of onlookers watching the sagging, limp blimp float toward Daly City, a suburb of San Francisco. Soon, the local police and fire department were chasing the blimp, along with, as HistoryNet.com put it, quote, good Samaritans and a posse of looky-loos, end quote. Though how one can possibly distinguish what kinds of civilians were chasing a blimp through the city, whether they were good Samaritans or looky-loos, I don't know. Years later, Dan Casentini, who was working in a grocery store in the area at the time, told the San Francisco Examiner... It looked like it was going to crash into the side of San Bruno Mountain, so I headed up the street to see it. You don't see airships crashing in Daly City just every day, you know? By 11.30 a.m., L-8 was dipping so low over the city, its wheels were scraping along roofs. 
Local resident Mrs. Horace C. Appleton told the New York Times, I rushed inside and yelled to my husband, Look, a balloon is falling on our house. I could hear the wheels of the blimp roll along the roof of the house, and then it struck some electric wires leading to the front of our house, and there was a flash. Finally, after crunching and scraping into several houses and generally scaring the pants off locals, L8 came to a rather violent stop in the middle of a residential street in Daly City. According to Atlas Obscura, quote, it perched fleetingly on a rooftop before drifting off and snagging in a tangle of power lines. The blimp sheared through the wires and sent arcs of electricity into the air before coming to rest on the ground. The engines were smashed into the pavement, one of them clogged with earth. The propellers were bent. Gasoline poured into the street, end quote. And the 2018 San Francisco Chronicle piece reported, quote, The blimp had landed in the middle of the street, with its upturned gondola resting against a telephone pole, its engines pointed at the ground. Its huge gas bag had deflated after the impact and was draped over a 1928 Dodge sedan whose owner, Richard L. Johnson, had been waxing it and fled when he saw the enormous airship descending on him. End quote. Shocked citizens gathered around the deflated and bruised L-8 as first responders rushed to the cabin to help the men inside. But, much to everyone's confusion, there was no one inside the blimp's gondola to rescue. Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams were gone. Okay, so what in the big balloon fuck happened here? On top of this whole wonky ride and a crash landing, both pilots were MIA? Sounds like a Twilight Zone episode that wound up on the cutting room floor. The first thing onlookers noticed was that L8's cabin door was open and latched from the outside to keep it open. When no one emerged from the open cabin door, rescue workers began cutting through the wreckage, assuming the men had somehow gotten trapped. But it quickly became clear the gondola was empty. Obviously, something must have gone terribly wrong inside L8 during the mission. Considering that radio transmissions ceased around 8 a.m., that must have been where and when the trouble began. But the radio was in perfect working condition. In fact, all the blimp's mechanics were in perfect working order. There was nothing amiss, nothing to suggest the need for emergency evacuation, nothing that should have prevented the men from communicating with the base. Just a tip-top, albeit banged-up, blimp with four hours of fuel left, completely missing its crew. The only evidence that a crew had ever been there was one of their hats sitting on the instrument panel. In fact, all three of the parachutes that had been on board were still there, along with the single life raft. A briefcase containing classified documents, presumably about the mission itself, sat behind the pilot seat. According to allthatsinteresting.com, all surveillance flights at the time were supplied with a weighted briefcase that was meant to be tossed overboard to sink into the sea if the mission was compromised. So the fact that the briefcase was still there meant the men hadn't intended on abandoning the blimp. Despite everything apparently being in working order, the battery had apparently been drained and some of the fuel had been dumped. The only reason the men would have dumped fuel would have been to ascend in a hurry, which there shouldn't have been a need for during their mission. The engines had been stopped, probably to slow the blimp down in a hurry. According to Atlas Obscura, those facts are slightly strange. And you know me, stranger, I'm no blimp expert, but... 
Wouldn't you think a seemingly unnecessary fuel dump, idle engines, and a dead battery on a blimp in perfect working order that's also inexplicably missing its crew rates as a little more than slightly strange? What the hell was going on in the cabin of L8 between 7.42 a.m. when they last radioed in to say they spotted a suspicious oil slick and sometime around 11.30 a.m. when the blimp ran aground on the beach and the men didn't come running out while they had the chance? If they were still in there, which they almost definitely were not. And if they weren't, why and where did they abandon ship? The good news was both men had presumably been wearing their life jackets as was required during the flight. So if they ended up in the water, they could conceivably have floated indefinitely until they were spotted and picked up. But of course, as of the time the blimp came to its final resting place in Daly City, no one had called in the rescue of two floating Navy guys. In the days following the crash, the Navy's first two working theories were that the men had gone radio silent as per protocol after spotting an enemy vessel, deployed themselves, and were picked up by a passing ship. Or that the men had fallen out somewhere over land and were hiking back to civilization. Far be it from me to question the Navy. I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff I don't know about how that shit works. But, like, don't you think if a passing ship had picked them up, A, it would have been either the Gallatin or Daisy Gray, or barring that, someone from the ship that picked them up would have, I don't know, radioed in to say they'd picked them up. And B, how long could it possibly take for the men to hike back to civilization? They were in Northern California, not Siberia. Like, a few hours? Maybe it was like that Twilight Zone episode where the astronauts think they've landed on another planet and end up killing each other over water until the last surviving member of the team goes just over a hill and realizes they were in Nevada the whole time. Oops. Regardless, a massive search went underway in the area underneath L8's flight path. For three days, the Navy and Coast Guard combed the land and sea. They found nothing. By August 18th, two days after L-8 took off from Treasure Island, the Navy felt confident that the land search was complete. With every stone overturned and every corner swept, the men were still nowhere to be found. The search at sea continued, though, with the Navy explaining that the men's life vests, known as May West life belts, I assume because it made the wearer look like they had ample breasts, would safely keep them afloat until rescue. Or, they reasoned, they may still be aboard a radio-silent vessel. Why in the world a vessel would need to be radio-silent for two whole days is beyond me. And even if they had to be, you'd think in that time they could have managed to ferry the men back to their base. Don't forget the initial mission had a radius of only about 50 miles. They couldn't have gone that far. As for what could have possibly happened that led two experienced naval pilots to abandon a perfectly working airship, the Navy had no answer. According to Lieutenant Cody's entry on usnamememorialhall.org, an official spokesman for the Navy said, quote, Nothing the Navy knows now has given a satisfactory explanation of what happened, end quote. Asked if it was possible L-8 had been attacked, a spokesman said, quote, That's very remote, end quote. I would imagine that someone would have noticed an attack on a blimp not that far offshore in San Francisco. When I told my husband this story, he suggested the men had flown above altitude for some reason and basically went crazy because of air pressure or something, to which I replied, Stay in your lane, asshole! 
Then, the next morning, after a very uncomfortable night on the couch, I apologized and explained that the Navy probably would have considered that, and as far as I knew, they didn't suggest it as a possibility. After three more days searching at sea, the search was called off, and the men were officially listed as missing. An official inquiry, launched on August 21st, came up with what everyone already seemed to know. Nothing was amiss with the mechanics of L-8. She was in perfect working condition. There was nothing to explain the radio silence and the subsequent erratic flight over the waters and shore of San Francisco and its eventual crash landing. The only thing gleaned from the inquiry was that the men must have abandoned the craft involuntarily sometime between their last transmission at 7.42 a.m. and when the Pan Am pilot spotted the blimp around 2,000 feet up around 10.20 a.m. The door to the gondola had been latched open, suggesting that perhaps one or both of the men leaned out of the ship at some point, possibly to investigate the waters below with binoculars. One would imagine that if one of the men fell out, the other would have radioed in to base for assistance, or at the very least to let them know what had happened. Or maybe they both fell out. Maybe one was trying to prevent the other from falling and they both went down. But wouldn't one of the 35 people on the two boats in the area, the naval cargo ship and the fishing vessel, have seen two men plummeting from the airship? Unless they fell out after leaving the area while heading back to the base, but if that was the case, what would have caused them to lean out of the gondola? They hadn't reported anything else unusual after the oil slick. They hadn't reported anything at all. If they had spotted something that led them to feel they had to investigate, wouldn't one of them have reported that? Also, don't you think they might have put on their parachutes before leaning out of a cabin of a blimp? Like, that seems like proper protocol, no? And then there were the conflicting eyewitness accounts that just added to the mystery. There was the golfer who insisted he saw someone parachute out sometime before L8 first ran aground on Ocean Beach. Then there was Ida Ruby, who'd been out on horseback that morning, who said, I noticed the blimp out over the water. It was very low, and I could plainly see the letters spelling out Navy. I watched it with binoculars and was quite sure I could see three persons in the cabin. Edward Taylor, a local teenager, told investigators he was certain he saw people in the cabin of L8 after it had first run aground and was only about 150 feet above the streets of Daly City. He ran up over a hill to get a better look, but... Uh, I got to the top of a hill just in time to see the blimp hit a telephone pole and saw a flash. When I got there, no men were in it. Uh, the door was open. Of course, we all know by now that eyewitness accounts are about as reliable as a condom with holes in it. But still, these reports are curious. Who could that third person have been? Also, not for nothing... How could whoever Edward Taylor thought he saw in the cabin have vanished just in the time it took him to clear that hill? One theory is that someone had managed to stow away in the gondola and overpowered the two men at some point. For what purpose and where all three men ended up, no one knows. And again, I don't know anything about blimping, but considering how careful everyone was about the extra weight added by the condensation the night before, don't you think they would have noticed the weight of a whole extra person? Unless they somehow mistook the weight of a hidden person for condensation weight? Could the balloon really have collected a whole person worth of condensation? Is that possible? That seems like a lot of condensation. 
Some people believe that Lieutenant Cody and Ensign Adams were either forced off the airship at gunpoint when they lowered to investigate the oil slick or actually shot down, or that they were actually spies for the Japanese and somehow boarded the Japanese sub willingly. The problem with these theories is that first of all, the people watching from the two boats on the water would have seen the men go from the blimp to whatever vessel was waiting for them below. Secondly, someone surely would have noticed the men being threatened with guns, right? That would denote a whole nother vessel in the area. Thirdly, how do you threaten two men wearing life vests in a blimp? Like, if the men refused to do what the person with the gun was ordering, what would have happened? If the person shot at them, what was the worst that could happen? They would have been inside the cabin. The chances of them getting hit seem remote. If the bullet pierced the balloon or the fuel tank or whatever, the men would have put on their parachutes and jumped out. It seems like refusing the orders of someone wielding a gun from the water would not have been that difficult. Also, if someone shot the blimp down, where was literally any evidence of that happening? No one reported gunshots, and the blimp had no bullet holes in it when it landed. At any rate, with either scenario, the briefcase filled with classified documents would have been thrown overboard or brought to the Japanese. What good is a spy who doesn't bring classified documents with them to the enemy? Another theory brought forth by computer infrastructure engineer and amateur researcher Otto Gross is that the stated mission of submarine surveillance was a cover for the actual mission, which was to test new radar systems. Gross claimed to have accessed the Department of Defense records on L-8, which showed that the new technology the men were testing emitted dangerously and poorly shielded microwaves that overpowered the men and caused them to tumble out of the cabin. He theorized this likely would have happened after sending down the flares in response to the suspicious oil slick. Gross claims there was a, quote, mysterious government agent, end quote, who appeared at the site of the crash and quietly disappeared in the hubbub after taking the briefcase with classified materials. That person, of course, never appeared for the official inquest. Gross's website is now defunct, and it's pretty much impossible to know if he really did gain access to secret government documents like he claimed he did. But why the Navy would feel the need to be secretive about testing new equipment is beyond me. It seems to me testing new equipment is pretty basic practice. Why the cover story? And once again, if the men did tumble from the cabin, why didn't anyone from the ships below see it happen? Some of the theories seem to be based on no evidence at all, like the one that suggests a love triangle over which one of the men killed the other while on board. When he went to dump the body, oops, he fell overboard too. There's nothing to suggest these men knew each other or had friends in common. Both men were married, not that that excludes them from becoming entangled in some kind of lover's quarrel, but, like, come on. If the men did fall out of the blimp without anyone witnessing it, it's certainly possible that they got swept out to sea, but one would think that with those Mae West life belts on, their bodies would have been discovered eventually. And then, of course, there are those who believe that Lieutenant Cody and Ensign Adams got abducted by aliens. Because of course there are. Now look, you know me. I'm not the one who's going to get on board with the crop circle anal probing aliens did it theory, but... Barring any other logical explanation, like, why not? But also, 
Why? Like, why these guys? It's not like they were high-ranking military dudes with access to codes to all the secret information. They were just two workaday naval officers who knew how to fly blimps. What would a super-advanced alien civilization want with them? But I can't figure out how it could have possibly been that the two men fell from the blimp without catching anyone's attention. I'm no statistician, but it seems to me the odds of both men falling out without being spotted and neither of their bodies showing up after the fact are slim? At the risk of sounding like a tinfoil hatter, maybe the blimp went above the cloud cover and... Listen, I'm having trouble even saying it. Maybe someone came and took them? I know, I know, it's insane! But you tell me, what else could it have been? Sometimes the craziest theory is also the most plausible, which is not the situation at all, but I'm all out of ideas. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, a man goes missing for no apparent reason and winds up dead on the floor of an abandoned room in a hotel under an impossibly small hole in the roof. The why and the how of Ray Rivera's death remains a mystery. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we'd want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca DiGregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our audio mixer and engineer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Lauren Hooper, and Andrea Jones-Sojola. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook page to join in the conversation. 